You can turn to Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Philippians chapter 4 is where we'll be. Spent a little time this week thinking back to my childhood. Uh, One of my earliest memories is from when I was about three years old, I think, if I remember right. I was laying on my parents' bed with my ear pressed against the very pregnant belly of my mother, trying to listen to the heartbeat of my little brother who was about to be born. And I I think I, I remember that memory well because I was so excited to be getting a brother. I was thrilled at the thought of having someone living in the house with me who I could play with all the time. I I was absolutely thrilled. Unfortunately, that that thrill did not last very long. Um, Matt came along, and it was not long before we found ourselves in conflict with one another. My brother and I fought over everything. Who got this toy? Who got to use the TV remote? Who got more real estate in the back seat of my parents' station wagon? It was like we were born to fight. Uh, conflict came very naturally to us. We were fighting day in and day out, which is, is really actually a little surprising when you think about it because conflict always brought pain to us. Uh, it wasn't long before one of us kicked or punched the other and then one or both of us got a spanking. Conflict was always accompanied by pain and yet day after day we fought with one another. Unfortunately, conflict comes just as naturally to us adults. Now, we disguise it better, and hopefully our conflict is not accompanied by kicking, screaming, and spanking, I, I hope. Um, but, but we are just as prone to fight with one another. We are just as prone to be in conflict with other human beings, whether it's our spouse or our children or our parents or a neighbor or a friend or a coworker. We are just as prone to conflict as we were when we were kids. It comes naturally to us, to human beings who are fallen like us, to fight, to war with one another. But just as when we were kids, that conflict is always followed by pain. Conflict brings stress into our lives. It brings emotional distress to us. It fractures and breaks apart our relationships. It's normal to hate conflict. Um, Most of us want to avoid conflict with other people at all costs. If you actually like to be in conflict with other people, um, there's something wrong with you. You need to come talk to me after the service. It's normal to want to avoid conflict if at all possible. And when conflict occurs, we should want to resolve it as quickly and effectively as possible. That's normal because conflict always brings pain. Well, that's actually exactly what Paul covers in our passage this morning. How do you avoid conflict And when you can't avoid it, how do you resolve it quickly and effectively? Look with me, starting in verse 2 of chapter 4. Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Sintiq to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, it's obvious this is a short passage. Um, apparently, there's a pretty serious situation of conflict going on in the church in Philippi. It's, it's reached Paul like a thousand miles away. Pretty serious situation. And yet, Paul only dedicates two verses to it. Very short passage this morning. Um, obviously, Paul is not going to address this conflict in detail, comprehensively. And neither can we address the subject of human conflict comprehensively in a 35-minute sermon. We can't say all that needs to be said. Conflict is an incredibly complicated thing. There are usually extenuating circumstances that make every conflict unique. All we can do this morning is what Paul did, identify some basic principles that are always true. 
He's going to actually give us, in, in the text this morning, I think, seven principles that are always true in any conflict. Seven principles you can always apply, no matter if the conflict is with a spouse or a child or a parent or a coworker, a neighbor, a friend. Seven principles that are always true. The first four principles are going to teach us how to reduce conflict in our lives. How to avoid as many conflicts as possible. That's the first four principles. Final three principles are designed to teach us when conflict happens. When the first four principles don't work and we enter into conflict with another person, how do we resolve it quickly and effectively and as painlessly as possible? So that's where we're going this morning. Seven principles from just two verses. It's very chock full. We're going to start with principles that teach us how to reduce the frequency of conflict in our lives. How do we avoid conflicts whenever possible? I think the the first principle that we can glean from this passage that we can identify here, step number one to avoiding conflict is anticipate attack. Anticipate attack. Notice, uh, if you look at Yodi and Sintiq, notice um, these women are, are pretty mature. These are not new believers. These are not immature believers. Notice that these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. These two women are proven leaders in the church in Philippi. They've been faithful for years, and yet they have fallen into conflict. And that's a reminder to us, all of us, no matter how mature, no matter how old we are, are susceptible to conflict. That just comes with our fallen human nature and living in a fallen world. Our, our sin and our sinful world are going to always draw us to be in conflict with one another. More than that, um, I, I think the biggest thing that's moving us to conflict is actually our enemy. I think one of Satan's chief strategies for your life is to create conflict between you and other people, whether a spouse, parent, child, friend, coworker, neighbor. Why does he want to do that? Well, remember what Ross said earlier. Jesus told us, how will the world know that God sent Jesus to earth and that we are Jesus' followers? By our love for one another. That's your primary tool for witnessing. If you want to go share the gospel with others, your primary tool is your love for one another. So what does Satan do? Well, he says, I don't want anyone to know about Jesus Christ, so I'm going to destroy your love. I'm going to attack your relationships. That's one of the primary places Satan is coming after you today and every day is to attack your relationships. He's trying to create conflict in your life. So step number one to avoiding conflicts is to be awake to be alert, to realize I'm not beyond conflict. My marriage is not beyond conflict. I'm not beyond conflict here at church. Satan is trying to create conflict right now between me and other people, so I need to be looking out for it. If I'm alert, if I'm awake, then I can smooth things over before conflict flares up. I can step out of the way of conflict and avoid many conflicts that could occur. Okay, so we can avoid a lot of conflicts by just being alert, anticipating that Satan is going to attack us in our relationships and try to create conflict. Step number two, or principle number two for, for avoiding conflict that we can glean from this passage, you can avoid a lot of conflicts if you will adopt Christ's humble attitude. Now, it's interesting, if you look in verse two, Paul says, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Sintiq, to live in harmony in the Lord, um, that, that verb, live in harmony, it's actually the verb phreneo that we've seen many times before that means have an attitude, have a mindset. Paul is saying, ladies, I want you to have the same mindset with one another. What is that attitude they're supposed to have? Flip a page over, chapter 2, verse 5, one of the most frequent verses we've read so far this semester, chapter 2, verse 5, have this attitude, this phreneo, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
How do you avoid conflicts? You adopt the mindset of Jesus Christ. What was Jesus' attitude in life? Humility. Humility. In humility, he took on human flesh and walked among us. In humility, he sacrificed his very life for us, for our sins. He died in our place. Paul's saying, if you want to avoid conflict in life, you need to think that way. You need to think like Jesus with humility, with a willingness to sacrifice your rights, your desires, your agenda for the good of others. You may not be called to literally die for another person, but you are called every day to put to death your rights, your desires, your agendas for the good of other people. Paul applies that attitude, that mindset of Jesus Christ to the subject of conflict in 1 Corinthians 6. Here's what he says. There's some believers in Corinth who are fighting with one another. He says, is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren." Paul's point is the mindset of Christ towards conflict basically says, um, if I have a beef with my brother, it is better for me to be wronged, defrauded, than to be at war with him. It's better to sacrifice your rights. Now, this person in Corinth probably had a legal right for a lawsuit, probably had a legal right to seek monetary damages. And what is Paul saying? doesn't matter. Sacrifice that. Sacrifice your right to be right. Sacrifice your right to monetary damages for the good of that relationship. It is better to be at peace with one another than to so pursue your rights that you would go to a lawsuit. It's better to be defrauded, to be wronged, than to to enter into conflict with another believer. That's a pretty bold statement, but Paul's not alone in saying that. Proverbs talks about that. Proverbs 19.11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. It is a person's honor or glory to overlook a transgression, to let it roll off their back, to to quit thinking about it, to not worry about it, to let it go. Now, we have to be honest as we look at this verse. Uh, There are some sins, some transgressions that are too big, too deep to overlook. If someone has really sinned seriously against you or they keep doing it over and over again, you, you probably can't keep overlooking that. That'll just turn to bitterness over time. So you probably have to deal with it. You probably have to enter into a conflict situation with that person. And we'll talk about how to do that in a minute. But most of the time that people hurt us in this life, we can simply overlook it. Let me be realistic with you guys. I'm a pastor working in a church with other pastors. You would think, man, there's a place where no conflict happens. No, we're in conflict all the time with one another. We guys constantly say things that rub against one another. We constantly hurt one another with our words and actions. Well, guess what? Nine times out of ten, it's simply a misunderstanding. None of us meant to hurt the other person. We just said something dumb. We just weren't aware of how it would come across. When that happens, just let it roll off your back. Don't even talk. Don't even make a big deal of it. Just say, you know what? Out of grace, I'm just going to let that go. That's a glory to you. That's honor to you. You protect that relationship. You avoid conflict by simply letting it roll off your back and fall away. That's a sign of maturity when you can just let something go and not make a big deal of it. So that's the second big way to avoid conflicts is simply to adopt Christ's attitude of humility and say, others are more important than myself. I'm just going to overlook it when they hurt me. I'm just going to trust they didn't mean to hurt me. I'm going to let that go. I'm going to think humbly like Jesus Christ did. 
Third principle we get, third step to avoiding conflicts in life from this passage, unite to share the gospel. I think it is significant that in verse 3, Paul draws these ladies, these leaders back to their history of evangelism. He tells them, these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, he's reminding them, you guys, go back to your roots. Remember, at the beginning, you worked with me to share the gospel. The gospel was your number one priority in life. You weren't fighting then. You weren't in conflict then when your life was centered on the mission of sharing the gospel. Now, we've heard Paul talk a lot in the book of Philippians so far about that priority, that the reason you are on the planet Earth is to share the gospel with those who don't yet know Jesus Christ, to tell them that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. That's why you're here. If you keep that your number one priority, it will eliminate a lot of conflicts from your life. When I'm thinking about this, I like to think of um, the book that was turned into a miniseries called Band of Brothers. Uh, It's about the Easy Company, a part of the 101st Airborne Division in World War II. And if you watch any of that show or read the book, you can see pretty quickly that the guys in that outfit are pretty rough individuals. They have pretty rough personalities. Um, These are the kind of guys that you figure if they were back in the States, they'd be fighting with one another every Saturday night. And yet, as you watch this series unfold, you see these rough guys really draw incredibly close together cement their friendships together to the point that by the end they're willing to die for one another. Now what is it that drew these rough guys together? A common enemy. They didn't have time to fight with one another because they were fighting the Nazis. Nazis were far more dangerous than one another so they chose to love one another so that they could fight a far greater enemy. Well that is a great picture of the Christian life. Why are we here? To fight an enemy. An enemy that's far more dangerous than any of us Satan himself. We are fighting his kingdom. We are resisting the gates of hell by sharing the gospel with those who don't yet know it. That's why you're here. That's your mission. That's the war you are in on the planet earth is to fight against Satan. When you'll make that your chief concern, when you'll make that the focus of your life, to band with one another in this room as a band of brothers, very literally, to share the gospel with those who don't yet know Jesus, when you do that, you don't leave room to fight with one another. You don't have any time to fight with one another because you're too busy fighting with Satan. That's how the Christian life is designed to work. We will avoid a ton of conflict if we will keep the gospel first, banding together around our common mission to share the gospel. That keeps us from fighting with one another. It's the third step to reducing the frequency of conflict in our lives. Final step is fix your hope on heaven. I think it's significant that Paul points these ladies at the end of verse 3 to their common destiny. After this life of heaven. He reminds them, your names are in the book of life. The book of life is God's record of all of those who've received eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. He's reminding these ladies as you're working in this conflict, remember the destiny that you have in the next life. I, I think what Paul is trying to do, he's trying to get the folks in Philippi to avoid a problem that James writes about in the book of James. Let me show you that. And James is talking about the same thing. He's talking to a group of believers, and here's what he says in chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James is saying basically to this group of believers, um, you folks have placed your hope for pleasure, for satisfaction in this world, in this life. And guess what? This, This world has limited resources. 
There's not enough money to go around. There's not enough pleasure to go around. There's not enough material prosperity to go around. So because your hopes are fixed in this life, you come into competition with one another. You are in envy. You are in strife with one another over the limited resources of this planet. That's just a reality, folks. If our hope is fixed on this life, we will fight with one another. If the greatest desire of my heart is a promotion at work, then when someone else gets that promotion, I've got conflict with them. My greatest desire in life is to buy that new TV and my wife spends that money on something else. Guess what will happen? Conflict. If my hopes and desires are fixed on the things of this world because resources are limited on the planet Earth, we will fight over it. Now, Christianity isn't the only religion to identify that problem. Actually, Buddhism was created to address this problem. The, the Buddha looked out and he saw all these people suffering because they were all competing to fulfill their desires. They were competing and coming into strife with one another. So what is Buddhism's answer? Cease desiring. Eliminate all desire. Desire nothing and you will experience peace with one another. Well, that's one solution. I like our solution a lot better. God tells us desires are great. It is good to desire satisfaction. It is good even to desire pleasure, but transplant that desire from this life to the next. Set your desire for satisfaction on heaven because guess what? In heaven, there are no limited resources. For you to be perfectly satisfied in heaven will cost me nothing because it's infinite glory, infinite blessings of God available in heaven. If my hopes are primarily set in heaven, if my greatest desires for pleasure and satisfaction are in the next life, then when you get something rather than me in this world, big deal. It bugs me for a minute, but I can let it go. Because you got it, I didn't, but who cares? We're both getting it in heaven. See how it works? If my desires are primarily in what I'm going to get in heaven, then I can avoid a lot of conflicts because we're not competing over the limited resources of this planet. So step number four in avoiding conflict, fix your hopes on heaven. Place your greatest desires for satisfaction in what you get in heaven when God satisfies all of us completely. So Paul starts this passage by giving us four principles for avoiding conflict, reducing the frequency of conflict in our lives. We need to anticipate attack, being aware that Satan will attack our relationships above all else in life. Number two, we need to adopt Christ's mindset of humility towards one another. If we are humble towards one another, then conflict doesn't have a chance to spring up and grow. Number three, we need to unite around our greatest priority, sharing the gospel. If we are primarily fighting Satan, we don't leave time to fight one another. And finally, we need to fix our hopes in heaven rather than in this life. Fix your hopes for satisfaction on what you get in heaven. So if we apply these principles perfectly, we we will avoid a lot of conflicts. Um, Sadly, none of us are going to do that. None of us are going to perfectly apply these four things. We're we're all going to struggle in these areas. And so conflict is going to happen. That's that's just a reality. We are going to enter into conflict with one another in our marriages or our homes or our church or our jobs or our neighborhood from time to time. And so when conflict happens, how do we resolve it? When conflict happens, how do we heal that conflict quickly and as painlessly as possible? That's our final three principles this morning that we can glean from this passage. Uh, First principle for conflict resolution that Paul gives us is each of us should initiate regardless of blame. Let me explain this. Uh, It's very interesting, verse 2. You actually get it in English. Um, Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Sintik. He repeats the verb there. It's true in Greek also. He urges both of these ladies separately. You never do that in Greek. It's very unusual. You'd have the verb once and then the two names. 
Very unusual construction. What Paul is basically saying by repeating himself in this unusual pattern is, um, I don't care who started it. And, And in fact, I don't care who sinned more. I'm going to challenge each of you to initiate with one another. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter who started it. You each initiate with one another. Paul challenges each of them separately. So in any conflicts that you have with another person, it doesn't matter who sinned more. doesn't matter who sinned first. You both seek healing with one another. You both take the first step. Conflicts get a lot easier when both parties take the first step towards one another. You both take that first step. Now, um, nine, well, really, 100% of the time, the first step begins with forgiveness. That's really where it all begins. This first step that you take towards someone is to choose to forgive them. That's where healing begins. You choose in your heart and your mind to forgive the other person. Even, even if their sin is huge, even if they sin first, you make the conscious choice to forgive them. Now, I, I'll be honest, that's not always easy for us. It's not always easy for me. It can be hard for me to forgive someone if they really sin against me, if they really hurt me. It's hard to get over that sin and forgive them. Uh, when I struggle with forgiveness, when I struggle to offer that forgiveness to someone, I meditate on passages like Ephesians 4. It's really helpful for me. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. What Paul's telling us here is that um, it gets easier to forgive one another when you remember how much God has already forgiven you. If you sin against me, if you hurt me, I need to remember that sin is, is, man, it is tiny. It is infinitesimal compared to the sin I've committed against God. Every day of my life so far, my thoughts and actions have been sinful against God often. Every day I've sinned against him, and God has shown me nothing but love and grace all the days of my life. My offense towards him is infinitely greater than anything you could do to me, and yet he has forgiven me. He freely forgave me of my infinite offense. How can I not give you forgiveness? Your offense towards me is so tiny compared to what I've done to God. How can I not forgive you? That will enable your forgiveness if you will remind yourselves and focus yourself on how much God has forgiven you through Jesus Christ. It helps you to be able to forgive other people. It's also helpful to not only remember how much God has forgiven us, but what the forgiveness of God in the Bible means. Uh, I like the passage, Isaiah 43. Uh, God says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It's really helpful to remember what forgiveness means. To God, forgiveness means choosing to forget. When God says that he forgives you, what he means is, I take your sin and I say it's forgiven, and then I take it out of my mind. The Trinity decides never to think about your sin again. That's what forgiveness means. What that's telling us is that if you say, I forgive another person, and then every time you see that person, you replay in your mind their offense, a little movie going in your head all the time, or you talk to other people about their offense, guess what? You you haven't forgiven them. That's not forgiveness when you think about that offense over and over again. Forgiveness means you choose to forget it. Forgiveness means that when that thought comes to your mind of what they did to you, you take that thought captive, you bind it up, and you set it aside, and you choose to think about something else. That's forgiveness. It is an active discipline of choosing to forget what the other person did. Okay, so God expects all of us, whenever we're in conflict with one another, with anyone, to take the first step of choosing in our heart to forgive them and to forget their offense. And then, if needed, kind of the follow-up step to that is to go to them and ask for forgiveness. That's kind of the corollary. Choose to forgive and then ask for forgiveness. 
Now, occasionally, conflict can be one-sided. They totally sinned against you. You don't need to ask anything for forgiveness. Um, But usually, it's not that way. Usually, conflict goes both ways. We both sin against one another. The point here is, if you have any blame in the conflict, having chosen to forgive the other person, then you step forward and ask their forgiveness. Even if they sinned first, even if their sin is much bigger than yours, if you have any blame in the situation, go ask them for forgiveness. Don't expect them to to ask you for forgiveness, to, to, to do that back toward you. They may not. Don't expect them even to necessarily accept your apology, but go and apologize for what you did. Healing begins, reconciliation begins when both parties choose to forgive to forgive one another, and to ask for forgiveness. Now, before we move off from this first step, I I do need to clarify something. Um, This is where conflict can become actually really complicated. This whole idea of forgiveness isn't necessarily simple. I want to make two important caveats, two important clarifications that are really important to bear in mind. Number one, if you're hurt really deeply, forgive and forget can take a long time. If, if someone does something to you like abuse or adultery, that's not something that tomorrow you're just going to forgive and forget and it's done. It's going to probably take years, decades maybe, to, to get to the point of being able to truly forgive that person and set aside their offense. That's okay. God calls you to forgive, but he's fine with it taking a lot of time if need be. It also may take help. You may, may need to come talk to a pastor or a counselor to help you move towards forgiveness if the offense is as deep as something like abuse or adultery. That's okay. Second caveat that's important to remember here, forgive and forget does not equal trust. Okay, when God says that he expects us to forgive and forget a person who sins against us, he's not telling us by that that you should trust them immediately. I'll give you an example. Let's say um, you, you've got something really embarrassing in your life that you're struggling with. And, and in private, you go share it with a friend asking them to pray for you. But um, this friend breaks trust with you and they go gossip about it. They go share your private need with someone else and it gets around and now your dirty laundry is out for all to see and you're embarrassed. What does God expect of you? Well, he does expect you to forgive him. It may take a little bit of time, but he expects you to choose in your heart to forgive that person. He, he also calls you to forget the offense, to set it out of your mind and not keep replaying it in your head. But he does not expect you to go share a secret with that person anytime soon. Only a fool would do that. This person has proven a gossip. God doesn't expect you to go trust them again anytime soon. Trust is only rebuilt over time. That person isn't going to need to show repentance that they're really sorry for what they did. They're going to need to show a long track record of proving faithful before you should ever trust them with a secret again. So it's important to remember that. God calls us to forgive and forget, but trust takes time to reestablish. That's okay. That's how God designed it. Okay, those caveats aside, step number one to bringing healing in any situation of conflict is to initiate, regardless of, your, if, of whoever sinned first, regardless of who sinned more, you take the first step. You choose to forgive and to forget the offense, and you go ask for forgiveness if you have any part in the conflict, any blame in it. That's step number one. Let's move on to step number two. When necessary in a conflict, seek help. Sometimes a conflict gets so serious, it gets so deep, it's so protracted that we need someone to come help us. That, that's true, obviously, in our situation here. Notice in verse 3, Paul calls someone to come help these ladies. They, their conflict is so serious, it's gone on for so long that they need a third party to come help them. That's fine. Oftentimes in our lives, when a conflict is really bad, we need someone to step in and help us. 
to help both parties find healing. So uh, what I want to do from this passage and from other passages, figure out who should you go to? Who should you go to as a mediator to bring healing? Um, Let me give you a few characteristics of a good person to go talk to. Um, Number one, you want to find a believer of proven maturity. Paul calls this person in verse 3 my true companion, or in Greek, my, my true yoke fellow. It's, it's a term you use for an equal. Uh, so clearly, this person is, is pretty far along in their Christian life if they're an equal to Paul the apostle. It's possibly Luke, maybe Silas, maybe a, a longtime elder of the church of Philippi. We don't know exactly who, but clearly, Yodi and Sinti need help from someone who is not just a new believer or an immature believer, but a very proven believer, someone who has great wisdom, who has proven faithful for years and years. Now, here at Grace Bible Church, I think that means maybe going to an elder or a deacon or a pastor, a small group leader, or maybe an older believer here in the church who you've seen walk with the Lord for many years. Go to that person and ask for their help. If your conflict in your marriage or in your home or at work or here at church or in your neighborhood is really serious and really drawn out and you can't seem to make progress, go find a person like that. Second characteristic that you want to look for is someone who is neutral, someone who won't take sides. It's, it's our tendency as human beings when we're in conflict with another person, who do I want to go talk to? I want to go talk to my friends. I want to build up my team of allies against you. I want to make myself feel good by getting lots of people behind me. Well, that's not legit. That's not okay to go do that. God calls us to seek out one mediator, one person, who will be a neutral third party. I love Proverbs 18 for this. We need a person who will believe that the first to present his case always seems right till another comes forward and questions him. Point is, when you share just your side of the story, it'll sound right till he goes and talks to the other person. What you need is a mediator who will listen to you, get the facts, but not rush to a conclusion. They'll go talk to the other person, and they will be a fair go-between, a fair mediator. They won't take sides. They'll be neutral in the conflict. That's who you need to find. It's probably not going to be a close friend. Someone who's really close to you, it's going to be hard for them to be neutral in this. So again, probably someone older, someone here at the church, an elder, a deacon, someone like that, a neutral third party who can step in and not take sides. Third characteristic I think you want to look for, someone who will maintain confidentiality. Proverbs 11 says, A gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy man keeps a secret. You're looking for a trustworthy person. They'll hear about the conflict and they won't share it with others. They'll keep it private. That's what you're looking for in the kind of person you seek help from. So when you face conflict in any area of your life, if you can't seem to move forward towards reconciliation, find someone who can help you. One person, not a ton of people, one person who can be a mediator between the two of you. You may need to talk together and decide together who to approach as this mediator. Look for someone wise and mature who will be a neutral third party, who will preserve confidentiality. That can really help you resolve conflict. Now that actually leads us to our third and final step. How do you resolve conflict in your life? Well, you can go a long ways towards resolving conflict if you don't spread it, if you don't share it. Um, If in your conflict, the only people you talk to are the one you're in conflict with and the mediator. If that's all you talk to, you'll go a long ways towards healing that conflict. It's interesting when we read Philippians 4, this passage about these two leaders, I think we're reading something that was already a failure. The fact that Paul from Rome had to address this conflict, he doesn't have to give us any details. Apparently everyone in Philippi knew what was going on between these two ladies. The fact that Paul the apostle had to address this in public is a failure. I think these two ladies probably felt a a real sense of shame. 
How do we know Yodi and Cintiq? The only time we encounter these ladies in the Bible is when we find out they couldn't get along. For 2,000 years, these women live in infamy because they couldn't get along. They could have kept it private. We would have never known about it if they would have kept it between themselves and a mediator. If that is all who knew about their conflict, we wouldn't be talking about them today. But they didn't. They aired their dirty laundry for all to see. And as a result, everyone knew about it. And now for 2,000 years, they're known as the ladies who can't get along. It's a pretty shameful thing. I think that's a, a principle for us there. It's teaching us if you want conflict to heal up well, to have as little pain, as little damage as possible, you must keep it private. You must keep it private. If you are in conflict with another person, who can you talk to? The other person or a mediator. No one else. The other person or a mediator. No one else can't go talk to other people about it. If you do, you just increase the circle of damage. Every person you add in the know who knows about that conflict is more damage that is done to the body of Christ. More consequences that last longer from that conflict. So keep it secret. Keep it private. I think this same principle applies to the rest of us. If we are not in conflict, but we hear about a conflict, if one of the people, one of the parties who is in conflict comes and talks to us and we're not the mediator, or if we hear about it from a third person, Joe who heard about it from Bob who heard about it from here, they come talk to us. In any of those situations, if you are hearing about a conflict that doesn't involve you and that you are not the mediator for, you need to stop the person mid-sentence. You need to stop them and say, I can't hear about this. This is gossip. You must stop talking right now. You can't tell me about this conflict because I'm not the mediator. I can't know about it. Okay, don't listen to it. Stop it and then tell that person, hey, um, please don't go share this conflict with anyone else. Don't go spread it because the more people know, the more damage is done. Now, this is really hard for us. We we as fallen human beings are really tempted. um, We as a species love to hear about other people fighting. That's why reality TV is so popular. Every reality TV show is about people in conflict, whether they're fighting in a house or on an island or in a race. They're always fighting, and we love it, and we tune in. Christians love conflict just as much. We're just better at disguising it. Often what we'll do is we'll, we'll go and, and we'll share about this conflict between two people out of concern for them. We, we want to share a prayer request. Please be praying for those people. Well, the Bible doesn't call that sharing a prayer request. The Bible calls that gossip. That is gossip in God's eyes. You don't have any business sharing that. They can share it if they want with limited people who will be mediators and pray for them. You can't share that. That's gossip. It will just destroy people. Uh, What really grieves me here is seeing this happen in marriages. Uh, I'll hear about two spouses who are struggling with one another. They're in conflict with one another, and one of them will talk to another person who can pray for them or maybe be a mediator, but then that person will talk to someone else. Hey, pray for these guys. Be concerned for these guys. Look out for these guys. And that person will talk to someone else. And soon, everybody knows about it. Man, that grieves God. It's never okay to share that information. That's private. Protect the sanctity of that marriage. You make it much easier for husband and wife to be reconciled together the fewer people who know. Less people know, reconciliation comes easier. So keep it private. Keep it secret. Don't be talking about conflicts going on between other people. Unless you're the mediator, you have no business knowing about it. I love how Proverbs takes it. It goes even further uh, than, the, than what I've given you so far. Proverbs 20 says, A gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid a man who talks too much. Not just don't listen, but avoid him. If there is someone you know who loves to gossip, they love to talk about all these people fighting, you need to just avoid them. 
Stay away from them. If they come talking to you and you can tell they're about to share something juicy with you, you need to say, stop. I'm walking away. Turn your back on them and walk away. Gossip is destructive. Avoid it. If we want to experience healing in our relationships and in our church, if we want to love one another well, we must keep our conflict secret and private. That's how healing comes. So all of us will experience conflict in the course of our lives. When we do, you move towards healing quickly and as effectively as possible if, number one, both of you will initiate. Both of you will step forward and offer forgiveness and ask for forgiveness, regardless of who sinned more or who sinned first. If you will seek out a mediator, a wise, mature person who won't take sides, but who will keep it confidential, they can really help you resolve that conflict. And third, you go a long ways towards healing if you'll keep it private, not share it with others. Now, in terms of application, I'm not sure what of these seven principles we've laid out today is a lot that you need to walk away with. But I'm sure one of them convicted you this morning. Pretty sure that everyone in this room, at some point as we walk through these biblical principles, you thought, that's one I'm not doing so great at. That's one that's causing some conflict in my life or that's keeping me from reconciling with someone else. Whatever that principle is, I challenge you this week to begin to apply it. I challenge you to meditate on these principles and begin to apply them to your lives. Now, what we're going to do this morning is actually apply this message and these principles as a body through communion. Uh, Communion is actually a a really incredible, really appropriate way to resolve and eliminate conflict. In communion, we gather together to do what? We gather together to remember as a group the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. That in Christ, God has forgiven us of everything. When we remember that fact, it becomes easier to forgive others, to overlook their transgressions. My goodness, how much more God has forgiven me? Surely I can forgive you and overlook it. In communion, we also remember the priority of the gospel, that Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection is the only hope of the world, so we need to quit wasting time fighting with one another and instead fight against the kingdom of Satan by sharing the gospel. Communion is our opportunity to remember these incredible biblical truths that will bind us together and help us avoid and resolve conflict. Now, as the men come forward, what I'm going to ask you to do as they're passing the elements, you guys can come forward. Uh, What I'm going to ask you to do is is spend some time in prayer, um, praying to God for two things. Number one, I want you to pray in thankfulness to God. Spend a few minutes thanking God for the breadth of sins he has forgiven. Spend some time thanking God that he has forgiven you of all of your sins. So start with thankfulness. And then number two, having thanked God for forgiving you, ask God to show you, to bring to your mind anyone whom you need to forgive. Who is it that sinned against you that God is calling you today to forgive them, to forget their sin, to put it aside, and to bring healing and reconciliation in that relationship? So take the next couple minutes in prayer, thank God for his forgiveness, and ask him to show you who you need to forgive. First Corinthians 11, we're told from Paul, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, 
He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. That's our prayer that you would have your way with us. That we would be submissive to your way and in every uh, part of our life would yield to you. And we would say, not my will, but your will, Lord. Not my agenda, but yours. Not my desires, but yours. And that you would furthermore mold us uh, to that will so that our will and your will would be one. Mold our, our, our agenda so that it would be one with yours. Lord, break us of, um, gently break us of anything that we hold to or stand uh, by or lean on or trust in aside from you. Only you, Jesus. Only you. In your name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Uh, there's Discover Grace um, over in that room right across from here. If you do that, Blake and Pat will be over there in just a moment.